So yeah, I guess we decided to call our little news bit uh, the green scene. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, over the holidays, <laughs> yeah, Dan's going to do some cool stuff with that. Welcome to the green scene. Uh, over the holidays, uh, actually for December 29th, it's dated. This is back in 2020. It was a long time ago. Um, in the Eco News. So do you guys know about the bowhead whales? No. Well, Tell me they're, more. They're well, one of the, I the, don't know if the hammerhead shark. <laughs> they're one of the, the baleen-type whales. Um, and like a lot of the bigger whales, they have been decimated for such a long time. It's been hard for them to come back. Uh, but this is a very interesting story because they are the only Arctic baleen whale that lives in the Arctic year-round. So they really like it cold. And despite the warming of the oceans, which has actually been detrimental to a lot of other species with the global climate change thing, they are actually recovering. So isn't that weird? So they're trying to figure out now, doing more research to find out, okay, well, what is it that's helping them recover despite this other stuff? Like, are they just resilient and coming back anyway? Or is there something going on with their food supply or whatever? So, I mean, I know everybody, um, me included, we're still trying to do things to help the environment and, and to help reduce the climate change and get things a little bit more stable. But it does show that, you know, nature is resilient. And despite these things, sometimes they seem to find a way on their own anyway. So. That's kind of cool, I thought. Another bit, um, this is from Science Daily. I like going to Science Daily a lot. They're, they seem to be a reputable source of information. So from ETH Zurich, this is from Switzerland. Um, this is from December 17th. So as world temperatures increase, so this is another thing about the climate change, organisms from lower latitudes and elevations are actually moving up higher, so to higher elevations and higher latitudes. Now, this shows that these creatures are adaptable, but at the same time, it's also a factor that could shift the ecosystem's established balance because nothing has interfered with that for so long. And now all these little creatures moving into different latitudes and altitudes could totally shift, shift that balance, right? So for even for a small scale example, uh, you guys know about the green roofs, right? Yeah. Because you guys are going to do some of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call Dan and... Well, and <laughs> it's assuming that uh, it's, it's easy, easy enough for us to manage because I, I remember, uh, sorry, side note, uh, when we were at Lakeland College, they were doing this big initiative to get a green roof into, um, what was it, like the Pedway walkway? Not walkway. Ooh. What's the right word? Um, kind of like an open... Breezeway or something? Uh, yeah. Yeah, essentially. And eventually they got it done, but like there's just a lot of research that had to go into, <laughs> you know, all the drainage and what kind of plants you have to get in there and like, yeah, what's the right soil yeah. and just all these factors. And like, it's a lot of work to make sure. And also it's the climate too, because um, yeah, if you're, if you're not getting enough moisture or you're getting too much and all these other, you know, factors that <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's a lot to think about. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Yeah. No, um, it just actually made me think there, I've got a connection in the UK 
uh, that does green roofs and does a really good job over there. Realize totally different climate and everything else, but some of the key elements, I can connect you guys and you could, you know, do some information transference because that'd be cool if we could get more into it over here. But on, anyway, on the small scale, so what they found is depending on how high they build these buildings that they put the green roofs on, uh, insect populations will move with the increase in elevation up to a certain point, and then they're not present anymore. So if you build your buildings too high with these green roofs, you're not going to have the biodiversity anyway. <laughs> and then the plants gradually over time will probably die off because they don't have the pollinators and all the rest of it, right? So that's something to look into when people are, are doing the green roofs to make sure they're, they're building it in that sweet zone. Um, but on the bigger scale, um, yeah, because these organisms are moving to different latitudes and elevations, it could make this big shift in these long-established ecosystems um, and for many reasons. So in the higher elevations, plants generally do not have as many herbivores uh, eating them and so they don't have as many defenses developed. So then when these new creatures move in, now suddenly they're left defenseless and they're just getting, you know, decimated by all kinds of stuff. And it's not giving them enough time to evolve either because it's happening fairly rapidly in comparison. So I just thought, yeah, I thought that was interesting that whether it's on the world scale or something as small as a green roof, it's comparable. They're seeing similar results with the way the the smaller organisms are moving and what effects it seems to be having on the green areas. So That's cool. Cause yeah, well, <laughs> funny. Well, I don't know if you could even answer this, but like, could you just um, focus it on like one kind of species? Like, do you think, or is well, it just think, kind of a smorgasbord of <laughs> all well, these different insects? Cause I, I'm um, just kind of thinking like, well, everybody doesn't like mosquitoes. So why don't we make a green <laughs> roof specific for mosquitoes and just put them all up there. I get that that is also going to affect the ecosystem because you know, there are animals that eat it, but yeah. I'm just thinking for the people that are just like, you know, we all hate I mean, I think most people hate mosquitoes. So if we could find a way that wasn't disturbing the ecosystem. Find too them much. in an island up there and then send the swallows and the bats and the mosquitoes there. It's all good. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, yeah. No, actually, it is funny, though, that you mentioned that because um, these guys at Zurich, uh, a lot of their research focused around grasshoppers because I guess for whatever reason, grasshoppers are some of the most... Um, genetically malleable or, or adaptable or, or whatever. So they would see populations of them moving fairly rapidly into other areas. They'd adapt to the new vegetation, the new elevations and longitudes, latitude, you know, all that kind of stuff versus some of the other ones, they take longer to find the effects. So they were using the grasshoppers as a kind of a control group for their insects, I guess. But yeah, totally, it would depend on uh, the insects being studied and you'd have to have a diverse group of them to get a good handle on what's really happening for sure. But yeah, it might, might who knows, it might be a way to uh, contain certain invasives in a different way. Like maybe you just move them all to this roof island at a certain uh, elevation or something and then it leaves everything else around it in an okay state or something. I don't know. But this is what we're here for, to make people think and ask questions. Yeah, because like, and the, yeah, that's interesting because I always think when, I mean, with climate change overall, like, um, 
I mean, there's so many different species that are, you know, changing their ecosystem or like, you know, their habitats where they are because, you know, either they're getting forced out by uh, climate change effects or by, you know, more uh, more anthropogenic uh, things coming into their areas. So, you know, people building towns, cities, expanding, whatnot. And I just always think of um, like uh, bears, how they're oh, yeah, starting bear. to, because before they, they were kind of more in the prairies, but then they kind of got pushed out. But then I think they're starting to move back in sort of in some places. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, Jasper or Banff, they're trying to fence off some areas for a certain period of time so they can let the grizzlies breed to repopulate. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just this year, like earlier, I read the news on that. But are they eventually well, going to move up back a whole to other... the prairies? We don't know. Probably not, because we're going to. We as people are going to continue to expand, <laughs> which yeah. I mean, I do like the initiative. Although black you know. bears, out of the bears, the black bears are probably more adaptable and they'd be more likely to move out farther than the grizzlies. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then of course, vast changes uh, can affect things too. Like we had a few years back, the, uh, the forest fires up in Fort Mac and everything. And that pushed so many animals down and over. We actually saw a grizzly bear down in Longview. And we're like, um, what are you doing here? <laughs> but it had nowhere now. else to go. It had nowhere <laughs> else to go. Like it was getting, they were getting pushed east from the mountains and south from the north. And um, so, yeah, all kinds of things were everywhere and all mixed up. So, so yeah, some yeah. things, uh, it's a, a, a natural disaster and some things man-made, but ends up having the same sort of effect on the animal populations. And then you just find out which ones are more resilient. Oh, yeah. So our other new little section, um, I think we're going to call it the the plant adventure guide. So basically, if we've traveled somewhere or come across something interesting or we want to focus on a particular plant or any of that kind of stuff, that'll be what this section's for. It'll just be a short little, you know, five, six minute clip podcast. Unless, of course, we get off in a tangent like we tend to do, but that's okay too, because, you know, more is always better. Um, but I thought, just for the hay of it, uh, I was going through at least all the places that I've been since I've been up here, because I haven't been up here my whole life like like Dan, and I don't know how much Kevin has explored around this area as far as parks and trails and things go either. But for me, I've only been up here for the last four or five years. But since I've been up here, I thought I would do a number one nature area of 2020 for this area for for kind of the central alberta um and for me dun, da, 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 it's the edmonton river valley and you guys want to know why why well let me tell you why here are some of my reasons um okay these are some did you knows as well so did you know that it is the largest urban stretch of parkland in North America, not just Alberta, North America. So if you want to go urban hiking or whatever, this is the longest stretch of urban parkland in North America. So we can be pretty proud of that. Pretty cool. Does it, yeah, because doesn't it technically go or like where they consider it like kind of the start and stop is from like Fort Saskatchewan down to like Devon or something like that? Yeah, I think because so, it's, it's Edmonton in the adjacent area, right? Like it's not just yeah. the, but, but yeah, you have to think that you could, yeah, almost do a whole trail from Fort Saskatchewan to 
Devon area, sort of. Yeah, and, and that's all and one thing. Because you could you could uh, kayak or canoe it. You could walk it. You could bike it. Like there's, uh, you know, lots of different methods you could use. And that it is a very windy river, so you can take a long time to go a short distance. But um, I just thought that was really cool. Um, it's eighteen thousand two hundred twenty-five acres, which is twenty-two times the size of New York New York Central Park. Wow, that's yeah. You, you don't know, think of it as being that big, but yeah, you have to think of for how much it winds, and yeah, for how and for how long it is, or like how long it stretches. Yeah, like it's it's a lot of space. Lot see, of we Canadians are pretty humble, but I th- I think we need to, you know. Start to their horn a little bit more. Well, I think you know what we should do. For, so for next New Year's, instead of you know the big apple dropping in New York, in New York City or whatever, we should have a ginormous apple drop here because we're twenty-two times the size. Could you imagine an apple twenty-two times the size of their apple dropping? Boom! <laughs> yeah, that'd put us on the map. Anyway. Um, it also contains 22 major parks. So it's not just one strip. It's, it's got a, a whole bunch of individual parks within it all along the corridor. And uh, that's very cool because there's different ecosystems, different things going on. Some are, you know, picnic areas and bike areas and some are more uh, quiet, out of the way, off-road type of things. So there's a lot of different choices. So whatever you're into, there's a place for you to go. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's also pretty cool. And there's 160 kilometers of pathways. So how much walking can you do in a day? <laughs> Not 160. <laughs> yeah. So, but, yeah. There's no- yeah that's, um, that's cool. And, and again, winter or summer, uh, you can cycle, walk, uh, snowshoe, ski, paddle, any of those things. And there's lots of tours available in conjunction. Some of them are kind of like what I do. Uh, you can do plant identification or herbal tours, that kind of thing. But then they've also got, I didn't know this, they have a Segway tour. I've actually never been on a Segway. That'd be kind of cool. To me, they're kind of intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they're, uh, they look easier than they are, but it's probably like most other things, the learning curve, once you get the hang of it, probably pretty fun. Kevin, have you ever been on a Segway? No. Have any desire to go on a Segway? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. So now for that Segway, we'll go into something else. <laughs> um, yeah. And actually during non-COVID times, there's also lots of public picnic and barbecue areas and all that kind of stuff available too. So I was like, yeah, you know, I might not originally be from here, but I'm pretty proud of the fact that I think the Edmonton River River Valley, ding, top the list of nature areas to go in the area for 2020. Well, you heard it here first. Yep. And the dog agrees. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, man. And then, uh, not to be outdone, but um, this is actually a place that I haven't gone, but I want to put it on my bucket list for 2021. Better not be something related to Calgary or else. No. Although, you know, I got to say, I like things from <laughs> down just, there and up I'm there. I'm just but kidding. <laughs> I'm, not one of these, I'm not one of these flame or oiler type of people. I don't really care about that stuff. Well, I know I said it. Taboo, no, you have but... to be that binary. It's either, 
You're either for one team or the other. <laughs> you got to choose. Well, I choose, no, I choose I think- the hacks, you know. Oh, sneaking <laughs> in with third choice. We're all going to die. Our, our listeners are going to kill us. <laughs> anyway. Um, no, I was thinking, so I don't know if this is going to my number two choice because I haven't really been there myself yet, or maybe this has potential for being my number one choice for 2021. But um, the Wood Buffalo National Park, have either of you been up there? No, no too I've far been, away. There's yeah, no I've road been. that leads to it. Well, <laughs> you have to go to the Northwest oh Territory. Yeah, you have, to, you have to go around, yeah. But I've, yeah, I've heard a lot of like great things about it and seen a lot of pictures. But yeah, actually trying to make the trip. I mean... <laughs> Well, we did go uh, there when COVID I was a little is... kid. Yeah. And we saw that we actually we saw. The... You fly, then drive, or what? Oh, no, well, you, I mean, you can drive the whole way. You drive it's up just, there. It's just, yeah, you have to almost like uh, double back because, yeah, you're going to the Northwest Territories and then you're coming back around uh, to the park, coming back into Alberta. Yeah. So, but um, we did go up there when I was a little kid and, and we took our motor home. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I just remember driving through the. The park and the buffalo were the, you know, as tall as the motorhome was. Like, they were huge. So, because they're wood buffalo, they're not the plains buffalo. Totally different creature. But um, other than that, I haven't been there since. But anyway, back to the uh, the points at hand. Um, I would like to put it on my bucket list for this year. I will challenge our listeners. Whoever can go there, go there. And please uh, send us emails, tweets, Twitters to whatever's and uh, let us know uh, that you've been there. Send us pictures. That'd be really cool. Um, but here are some reasons why I want to go. It has the world's largest beaver dam. Isn't that cool? Silence. It's definitely. How big is it? It's big enough that it can be seen from space. <laughs> These are busy beavers. <laughs> it was actually relatively unknown. A researcher named... Oh, actually, no, it's a different guy. But there was a researcher that saw it on Google Earth in 2007. That was the first time it was seen. It kind of, that's how remote it is. It went kind of unnoticed until then. And then when they discovered it, they're like, holy crap, this thing's huge. Um, and it's in a remote location. So you'd have to pretty much hike in on foot. So far as we know, there's only one explorer. His name's uh, Rob, Rob Hall, I guess. He actually made it all the way to the dam in 2014. So yeah, I want to go see the world's biggest beaver dam. Woohoo! And of course, there's the buffalo and everything as well. Or bison is the proper term, but you can see the wood bison in Elk Island. Um, are those? Because I'm I'm not sure. I haven't been out there yet. For shame, for shame, I know. But um, are those the plains How buffalo? Or are those you? wood buffalo there? There's uh, both. Yeah. I, so was- on the north side, it's the plains. Uh, bison and on the south side is the wood buffalo trail Ooh, and that's so they've, the no, wood bison trail and that's the wood bison but that's the trail does it actually get you to the bison <laughs> yeah if you're lucky you get to see the wood if bison. you walk all the way to wood buffalo you'll get <laughs> no um yeah i didn't know whether they had both one or the other there um our plan actually was we were going to take steve's dad there last summer but, but then with COVID and whatever, his dad was a bit nervous. His dad's 94, so he was a bit nervous to get out there and didn't want to get exposed or anything. So maybe this summer, maybe this summer. But yeah, Elk Island National Park, that would be another great place to go. And then, yeah, so, didn't they take a bunch of 
what was it plane maybe it was planes or or wood uh buys in one of the two then they take a bunch to planes and wood <laughs> and trains and Russia to no 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 not to Russia uh, to Banff. <laughs> Uh, oh, I, yeah, mean, they they, they I mean, they might have taken it to Russia too. I didn't hear about that. Oh, but yeah, yeah, I, I thought the they were trying buffalo, to do yes, some, buffalo. doing some uh, uh, repopulating, just like kind of threw them out. Yeah, to a little I think area. they've got a population of wood buffalo there. Yeah, because I mean, I, down south, I'm used to there's plains buffalo all over the place. That's those are the ones that people farm as well. So, but mm-hmm. the wood because well, I think they were trying to look for kind of change up the genetics of them. I thought like trying to get them. <laughs> back to be more natural, if that makes sense. So I think there's yeah, been a the, the original, Well, yeah, because I think some of them have been interbreeding or something too. So um, so yeah, I could totally see that. Anyways. We'll create, a, create a whole new bison. And then, of course, you got the the cross with cattle. They got the beefalo, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've heard of the beefalo. It's a real thing. It's, it is a real thing. Um, oh really? Oh, yeah. I, thought just, I thought you were just kidding. Oh, yeah. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. There's a beefalo. Look it up. There's a beefalo. We'll have to post a picture of a beefalo on the <laughs> website just because. Domestic cattle breed. Oh yeah, hybrid offspring. Hmm, I did not know that. Yeah, and I think the re- the original reason for doing it is they wanted the hybrid bigger, and they wanted obviously bigger, more beef, and the leaner beef. They look kind of cool. Anyway. The things people do. And then uh, th- back to the, the Plains Bison. So we've got a friend down by Longview. He does movie work. And so animal wrangling. And they've got buffalo that are trained for the movie sets. And they had one. Uh, I think they still have Stanley. Anyway, this guy, he's trained for, to go under saddle. And he likes ice cream cones. So yeah, if you, if you raise them from a calf, they can be pretty cool. But um you don't want to just walk up to a wild one because <laughs> you can see uh, what those videos, uh, what do they call when when animals go animals gone wild or whatever it is, and people do stupid things like try to get really close, taking photos of the wild animals, and then they get gored. It's great, not really. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely go up and pet a bison or a moose whenever you see them. <laughs> oh yeah, well we no, saw a video. There was this that. one lady. She was she was so stupid. <laughs> She kept coming closer and closer, and you could see the the bison's getting mad because he's starting to stomp his foot, and he's, you know, swinging his head. That's probably a sign to back off and leave. Nope, nope, nope. So what happened? The next scene, she gets just totally flung like you see the uh, in the rodeos with the bullfighters or whatever. And in the end, oh I don't know how it happened, but the bull was wearing her pants on his horns, and she was just in a jumbled heap on the ground with no pants on. You know, part of me feels bad for, for her because obviously she got hurt. The other part of me is going, you're really stupid and deserved it. And the other part of me is going, poor bison, because it caused a stampede. The whole herd started running. A fish and wildlife officer had to try with a pole, get the pants off of the buffalo because, of course, it's running around with its eyes blindfolded and all freaked out. And he had to try and do it. And it's dangerous for him because they're all, you know, worked up and whatever. And he's trying to get these pants off. And I'm just like, oh, lady, you're so stupid. I hate to say it, but sometimes Darwin should prevail. Well, I just figured because it's winter and we just, you know, experienced the holiday season and all. And poor Kevin, I'm sorry you have to wait for your Chinese New Year. But it's going to be big and awesome because it's not until February. It's okay. February, I don't have anyone to it? celebrate with anyways. 
We will. Yeah, we would love to do Chinese New Year. I was just talking to Dan about that. I think there's can you a make us those? <laughs> can you make us those those stuffed buns? I love those stuffed buns. Anyway, no, now I'm back on food. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, I thought you were this miracle, you know, Oriental Express whiz cook guy. I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know how to make buns. <sighs> That's okay. All right. Up next. Hi, welcome to the Plant Adventure Guide. Over the winter season here, we were talking about the, uh, you know, sprucing up your your winterscape, and we were talking about uh, the holiday season and everything. So I thought how appropriate it would be if we talked about the glorious red osier dogwood, because isn't it an awesome oh. shrub? Yeah, it's a beauty, eh? Okay, so... Um, you guys can jump in on any information you have because I know we've all experienced this awesome shrub before. But um, I guess what I know about it is <clears throat> medicinally. Now, first of all, I'm not going to say anything medicinal um, to put myself in a hole because I am not a medical professional. So if in doubt, check with your doctor. And some of this stuff is based on uh, indigenous medicine or other types of medicine. So without me experiencing it firsthand, I don't know for sure. But some of the things that I have heard or seen or some of the stuff that actually does have scientifically backed up information, which is always cool. Um, <clears throat> so from the National Library of Medicine, which is also the National Center for Biotechnology Information. So it sounds like it's legit with all that in there. Um, there's a lot of collaborators in this study, but they've actually found red osier dogwood extracts, which they call RDE. So that's the cool term, RDE, yeah. So it contains high levels of phenolic compounds, which are recognized as natural antioxidants. Now, antioxidants, you guys have heard of, right? So you know that these are compounds that bind to free radicals, so they remove the toxins out of your body, possible anti-cancer properties, all this kind of stuff, right? Right? Yeah, Disagree yeah, yeah. It's okay. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Some people <laughs> believe in this, some people don't. And, well, you know that... Um, Chinese medicine, those old Chinese doctors, they started yes, researching those, um, all the plants and those stuff a long time ago, probably like 4,000 years ago. And I was just looking and they said in some kind of, um, uh, what's it called? Some kind of grass and wood Bible. That's just a bad translation by me. They said um, it's good for, um, uh, it's a painkiller. And it heals, oh, yeah, it, it, it treats a uh, headache, uh, diarrhea, uh, what else? I don't uh, even well, know yeah, what they're talking with about. With it having the phenolic compounds and stuff and the, uh, being an antioxidant. So inflammation, uh, certain tumors, like I said, the anti-cancer thing. Um, and like you say, it's also been used historically for a lot of other things in many different cultures. So it's been used as an astringent, a tonic. Oh, you said the diarrhea word. Yeah, fever, skin problems. I'm not going to test it out unless I'm stuck, but apparently it could be a treatment for poison ivy, if you've gotten into that. Um, it's got analgesic properties, hence the headache 
that you were referring to. Mm, it's also good for uh, treating erectional problems. Oh. I don't have that problem <laughs> have myself. But <laughs> let Dawn know, and she plant, she grows those, uh, she grows red Aussie dogwood, and um, you might not even have to see a doctor. So watch this summer. I'll be sold out, and we'll wonder why. <laughs> anyway. But also uh, keep in mind, like most plant things, if you have too much, it can act as a purgative, which means you would vomit or possibly have diarrhea, can cause nausea. Um, so again, either be very careful with what you're doing or consult a professional before experimenting with this kind of stuff. But it is interesting that a lot of these native plants do have a lot of other potential as far as medicine and other things, not just because they look like a pretty plant. Our indigenous people, they also used fiber from the bark to twist it into cordage, so to use as, as rope. Oil from the seed. Now, you'd have to have, I would think, a lot of seeds because the seeds aren't that big. But apparently you can use the oil from the seed to burn for like lighting, for like candle, uh, uh, like candle wax or whatever, right? And for natural dyes, it's kind of funny because you look at red as your dogwood. What color do you think it would produce? Purple. Purple. That's interesting. Most people say red because Brown. of the bark, right? <laughs> Brown. Yeah. Well, it's funny because depending on the mordant, which is an additive uh, that fixes the dye, and depending on which part of the shrub you use, it can actually determine what color you get. But you could get black or ecru, which is a cream kind of beige color, or uh, red. And for the red dye, um, some of these people will add cedar ashes to help uh, fix the red, I guess, because red's one of those fading colors. But, um, but anyway, yeah, so it does make some different dyes. And as far as the actual shrub part goes, it's pretty cool because it's a it's just a medium sized shrub, like it's about six to nine feet, which means it's just under two to three meters. Uh, works great for shelter belts, um, for holding snow, for wet areas. It thrives in wet areas really well, and it has a great root system, so it's it's good for helping stop erosion. Uh, makes a great habitat for. And, and food for deer, moose, robin, cedar wax wings, all kinds of game birds. Um, and it's aesthetic in all seasons. So if you want to put it in your yard, you're not just going to look at it for a few months and then go, oh, and now it's all ugly and just looks like sticks in the ground. Instead, you're going to get nice bright green leaves in the spring. You're going Then it's going to move on to those nice clusters of white flowers. Then in the fall, the leaves turn to this nice maroon color. And then through the winter, you get that really uh, bright, vibrant red bark. So it's an all-season shrub. That's pretty cool. Did you guys know what the word osier actually means? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's actually a French word. And it means, uh, it's French for long shoots or rods for basket making. They actually use it for, uh, in conjunction with some of the willows as well as the, uh, the dogwood because they're willow type shrubs anyway. I'd be, it'd be interesting to find out which, all the shrubs that have osier in the name, I guess, because then you'd find out, oh, originally they were, they were used for basket making or something. Um, and part of the reason why they're used for 
the basket making is because they have a pretty fast growth and it grows pretty straight for uh, for the new growth. It can grow 24 inches per year, which is pretty quick. And it actually thrives on what we call coppicing, which is chopping it almost right down to the ground because then it'll throw up a whole bunch of new shoots and it actually is healthier that way or by pruning it because it it is also known for uh, over time it gets kind of gnarled up and a lot of different branches die off and it gets kind of ugly looking if you don't coppice or prune it. If you do prune it or coppice it, it will actually be better for it, which explains why. So, you know, the deer and the moose and, and all those ungulates out in the wild, they browse on it, right? And everywhere they've chomped, it actually sends up multiple shoots. So them, them grazing, browsing on it actually is beneficial. So it's a symbiotic relationship, I guess you could say. Have you guys seen, there's these little blue butterflies in the summer. They're just little tiny guys. Have you seen them flying around? Yeah, a couple times. So those are called spring azure butterflies. And the dog, this red ozer dogwood is actually a host for them. So it gives them, them a home as well for their little caterpillars and cocoons and whatnot. Um, and also our indigenous people used the, they, and then maybe they still do, I don't know, but they used to use the, the wood for shafts for their arrows and certain other tools as well. It's a really, really versatile, useful shrub. And I think it's really underrated. It's really cool that it's native to Alberta. I'm not being biased here. I just think everybody should use it. Ta-da! Yeah, they're probably one of my favorite shrubs. Sounds very nerdy and depressing. It's okay to be a plant nerd. The prickly rose. Yeah, it's a nice one yeah, too. I but I'm definitely, just yeah, I definitely love a prickly rose. Especially <laughs> working with them. Huh? Amazing. Having to weed around I like, them. I like the rose hips Great. and the flowers, but the rest of it I could probably do without. But anyway. But yeah, the rose would be another yeah. another species for another time. We're talking about the red osier dogwood today. <laughs> Do you know that yeah, no, every year uh, on lunar calendar, um, what's it called? The September the 9th on the lunar calendar, it's, um, it's called the Double Ninth Festival in China. And it's a tradition that people will cut the red osier dogwood and put that into their pocket Ooh. to... Um, yeah, to uh, to memorize the ancestors. Oh, like a kind of a reminiscing type of thing. Yeah, it's uh, like a symbol. I don't know why they choose yeah. the dogwood. Probably because it's growing everywhere in the mountain. It's like a different kind, not the red Aussie dogwood, but a, a, a certain species of dogwood. It's very That's similar. That's really cool. But growing oh, the I sub, like it. Um, yeah. See, we should we'll we'll start a Canadian version over here then. So we'll go to all the the Chinese communities and say, "Here's your your red osier dogwood. And keep a piece in your pocket, and you can uh, talk to your ancestor." Well, no, not talk yeah. to <laughs> not talk to your ancestor, <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> Remember your ancestor. That sounds a little bit weird the way I said it. Yeah, that's cool. I like I really like finding out more about how other cultures use same or similar plants too. So that's pretty cool. Awesome. Red, what was your dogwood? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>